Thank you so much, Chris and team. Kind of makes you just want to keep on singing, doesn't it? Well, thankfully, we get to continue our worship of God through the preaching of his word. And as you may have noticed, our pastor, Ken, his wife, Kelly, are not here this morning. There, he is teaching at a conference in Tennessee. And so it is my great privilege to introduce our speaker for this morning. Does Adam Tyson need an introduction, you say? No, he doesn't. But uh, that we realize there's probably many of you who don't know who he is. He, Adam and his wife Lisa are here. Lisa, welcome. Good to see you back there. There are five children. I, ha I tried to memorize your kid's name. Anna, Nate, Micaiah, Hudson, and Zoe. So thank you so much for being here. The whole Tyson family is here. Make sure to give them a hug after the service. Adam Tyson is the senior pastor at Placerita Bible Church there in Santa Clarita Valley. He's been there about six and a half years. And Adam served on staff here at Lakeside Bible Church for about seven and a half years. And so I had the privilege, it was Ken and Adam and I, for a season. Adam is a dear brother. When you meet Adam, he, he's never met a stranger. Everyone is Adam's friend. He is full of energy and zeal and passion, and he's a man of integrity. And the thing that I love about Adam is his passion for Christ is not just an act. What you see is what you get. Sometimes you get a little more than you wanted, but that's Adam Tyson. He is just passionate about Jesus Christ. And, and so that is the thing I think, Adam, I think you have challenged me in that way. So Adam is going to bring the word of God to us this morning, and let's give him a warm Lakeside Bible Church welcome. Welcome, Adam Tyson. I think I like Chris Steyer. You guys like Steyer? Woo! Steyer's on fire! That's what I'm talking about. So Chris and Shelly have been good friends of ours for a long time. We were neighbors in the same cul-de-sac for years. And I used to see Chris in the gym in his garage just pumping weight. Chris, are you still doing that? Pumping weight? In his heart. In his heart. He's pumping blood now. He used to pump weights. Now he's pumping blood. So anyway, it's great to be with you. What a joy for us to be here at Lakeside this morning. We kind of still consider this as our home church, our home away from home. I look out and see so many faces of people that we know and love and miss dearly. In fact, just between me and you guys, Lisa's like, I want to go back to Lakeside. I love being at Lakeside. We love being with you as much as we can. And yet we love our church. We love Placerita, and uh, we love being where we are. We're at a little church about the same size, three to 400 people, just on the north side of Los Angeles. And uh, we just love serving there. We're right next door to the Masters University and uh, have the opportunity to influence a lot of students. We have a lot of young families. Uh, God's doing a great work at our church. And in fact, our church right now is under renovation and expansion. We're actually meeting over at Masters University for probably nine months or so while our church is being redone. So we're excited about that. And I'm just excited to share with you God's word this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to John chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I just want you to know we love uh, Pastor Ken and Kelly. They've been a great blessing and encouragement to us always, as well as uh, Chris Del Aguila, who's actually from Los Angeles that we know. And then, of course, your new youth pastor, the favorite youth pastor here, Kyle Genesis. Where's Kyle this morning? I know you came up to me earlier. How you doing? Give it up for Kyle Genesis. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. Woo! Yeah! All right. <clears throat> So this morning, I just want to bring you a real simple message, and the title of this morning's message is Another Helper. 
another helper. We're in John chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 15, actually verses 15 through 17 together this morning. So John 14, verses 15 through 17, think again, the title of today's message is Another Helper. Here's what the Lord Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning as we look at this passage about the Holy Spirit and about the words of Christ, what he commands of us today. And I pray, God, that you would just open our minds, open this text, apply your word to our heart today. Allow us to see Christ in all of his glory and help us to understand what this passage means so that we can be challenged and encouraged this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past summer, our family had the opportunity to head back to where I'm from. I was born and raised in Georgia. And one of the things I've been wanting to do with my family while we were in Georgia is go see the headquarters for Chick-fil-A. How many Chick-fil-A fans do we got out there? All right, there you go. Look at that. And so we went to the headquarters of Chick-fil-A. I have a niece who works there. And while we're there, we're walking around, and it's just like awesome. I mean, this, the, the ground floor, they have a lot of cars. They have one of the original Batmobiles. You know, there's like people walking around. They all look really Christian-like, you know, and you know, like this business is changing the world. And uh, our favorite thing about uh, being at Chick-fil-A wa- was that we got to, uh, to go to the uh, cafeteria. So if you work at Chick-fil-A headquarters, uh, you get to eat Chick-fil-A food for free. So it's pretty amazing. You can eat Chick-fil-A. They had an assortment of other kinds of foods. Uh, we were able to even have delicious hand-spun milkshakes, all that we could have. I mean, my kids thought we had died and gone to heaven. They were like, this is it. This is heaven. This is the banqueting table. It's right here. And so we had a really good time there. But one of the most interesting things about this whole tour of the Chick-fil-A headquarters is our guide took us up to Truett Cathy's office. Now, Truett has since passed and passed the company down to his son, Dan. And he was just kind of telling us a little bit about the family business. And as Truett was preparing to die, he wanted to make sure that Dan would do three things. Number one, Truett told Dan that he could never have Chick-fil-A be open on Sundays. Number two, he must keep the company private and not go public so that they could control their distinctively Christian, you know, uh, goals within the company. Number three, that they must continue philanthropic and mission work as an organization. And as you might know, Dan has kept those three promises to this day, and Chick-fil-A has never been better. In fact, just this year, it's now the third largest company, uh, fast food restaurant in America, uh, behind, I think, uh, McDonald's and uh, some other restaurant, I think. But it's like third in sales in the U.S. Unbelievable, right? And so you say, well, Adam, why are you telling us about Chick-fil-A? Well, I just want to say that just like Truett Cathy had some very specific things that he wanted to pass on to Dan, this morning in our text, we're in the middle of what's called the upper room discourse. And in this upper room discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ has some very important things that he wants to teach and say to his disciples. Now, the upper room discourse is recorded in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. And in these five chapters, all take place just within a few hours. 
And during this time, Jesus is only 12 to 18 hours away from the cross. And he's got just a few hours to pour into his disciples some very important things. One of the things that he does in John 13 is he washes the disciples' feet. And he just reminds them about serving one another. Also, he uh, gave a warning to Judas who would betray him. And yet we see in his interaction with Judas that God is still sovereign even over that. Another thing that we see in this upper room discourse is how Jesus then broke bread with his disciples as he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. And then we also see how Jesus gave his disciples some last-minute instructions, some really important ones, like in John 13, 34, when he says, A new commandment that I give you that you, what? Love one another. Just as I loved you, you are to love one another. Jesus also gives unparalleled encouragement, and he tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them, that where he is, they may be also. And so I love reading through the Upper Room Discourse because there's all kind of encouragement and challenge. And if you just want to have a, a, a place where you could study to know what does Christ want us to do as his remaining disciples and ambassadors on earth, I would really encourage you to read John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. So right in the middle of that passage is what we're looking at this morning of John 14 verses 15 through 17. And this is super important in the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. At this point in the upper room discourse, I want us to see some additional instruction and encouragement from the lips of Jesus. And this instruction and encouragement that we will hear today from the word, uh, the, the lips of Christ, it's for all believers. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, if you're in Christ today, Christ wants you to hear these words. This is for every blood-bought child of God. This is for every born-again Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these words that we're going to look at this morning will challenge us and encourage us to walk daily with Jesus. Are you ready? Just two simple points this morning. Number one, in these three verses, I want to outline just two points. Number one, you have a great responsibility. As a Christ follower, as a Christian, you have a great responsibility. What is that responsibility, you ask? You're like, Adam, what is it that we're responsible for doing? Well, according to the word of Christ, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, you and I have an important responsibility to adhere to the Word of God. You and I have an important responsibility that if we say that we love Christ today, and that we worship Christ today, and that we honor Christ today, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a very important responsibility. I want to talk to you about it for a little bit before we move, obviously, to the second responsibility. And the first responsibility, again, is if you love me, you'll obey me. So let's just ask the question, well, what is love? He says, if you love me. This is the first time the word love is used in chapter 14. In chapter 13, we were exhorted to love one another. And that is the very way that people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, is if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus is saying, not only are you to have love for one another, but you are to love me. And the way that you will love me is by keeping my commandments. The word love here is the word agape. According to BDAG, which is like a Greek lexicon that pastors are supposed to read 
to do word studies, gives us three definitions of this word agape. Let me read them to you. It says, number one, this kind of agape love means to have a warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish or have affection for. Second definition, just listen, just going to build it all together. It also means to have a high esteem for or satisfaction with or to take pleasure in. Third component of this definition is to practice or express love in order to prove one's love. Now, if you put all three of those together, here's what you get. I'm so in love with you, and I cherish you so much that I get great pleasure in proving my love for you. Or to say it even more simply, I take great pleasure in proving my love for you. That's how we ought to be responding as Christians. I take great delight. I love you so much. I cherish you with all my being. And because I cherish you with all of my being, I can't wait to obey you. I love to keep your commandments. They are joy to my heart. And unfortunately, I think sometimes as Christians, we're like, well, I love God, but man, it sure is hard to keep all that Bible stuff, isn't it? And I think what we're missing is that component of the direct translation of love is obedience. The direct translation of God gives us a love for him that's so great and it's so wonderful. All we can do is like, I just can't wait to obey you, Lord. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want to walk in obedience to you. And this theme of obeying him, loving him and obeying him is out throughout this, this whole upper room discourse. In, first, excuse me, in John 14, verse 21, just look down a couple of verses later, verse 21, Jesus says it again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John writes the same thing in his epistle, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 2 John verse 6 says, and this is love, that we walk in according to his commandments. So listen to me this morning, church. Love is not just a feeling. It is a feeling and a function. It is a feeling because there is uh, affection Holy affections, Jonathan Edwards said, that we have in our heart for God. So we love him with all of our heart, but it translates into function. And if you just have feeling and you don't have function, then you're missing the idea of what love is. Because love for God always walks in obedience. Feelings have a function. You know, just a couple of months ago, I noticed on uh, the internet, I saw the 2020 Corvette just came out back this summer. And the base model for the 2020 Corvette, get this, it's only 60K. So I'm thinking about getting one. But I'll need to get a different salary in order to afford it. But can you imagine, like I've always been, you know, had a thing for Corvette. So, you know, that's just my car, right? So can you imagine if I bought a brand new Corvette, I spent the 60K on it, which I don't have, all right? And, and, I, and, I, and it was delivered to my house. And it was a beautiful car. It was candy apple red, and it was a convertible, and, and it was all this incredible interior design, the latest Corvette, and it's just beautiful. And can you imagine if I got in that Corvette and then found out it had no engine? How do you think I would feel about that? I mean, I love the way the Corvette looks, but I also love how the Corvette functions. 
part of the point of getting a sports car is to drive fast, like to go from zero to 60 in like under three seconds. And it's a waste just to say, I love my car if it doesn't get you anywhere. And all I'm trying to say is that it is a waste. How much infinitely greater is it a waste to say, I love my faith. I love my Lord. I love Jesus. But it's not taking you into a walk of obedience. We don't just look at the Bible. We obey the Bible. We just don't look at Christ and say, I love you, Lord. We obey him every day. This is the kind of love that God wants to grow in our hearts. Love has feeling, but it also has function. Love has beauty, but it also has brains. Love has affection, and it also accelerates into action. Love is not just what you say, it's what you do. And oh, by the way, isn't that how God demonstrates his love toward us, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, he did what? Did he just say, I love you? You're sinners and I love you, that's that. No, no, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God models this love. He says, I love you. I love you. And I'm going to show you that love by sending that which is most precious to me, my son, my one and only son. I mean, again, can you imagine if God just said he loved us, but he never did anything for us? Can you imagine, girls, if you had a boyfriend who says, I love you, and he wants to sing ballads to you about his love for you, but he never did anything for you? Can you imagine, wife, if your husband says, I love you, and he just sits on the couch and watches college football all day yesterday instead of getting off the couch and showing you that he loves you by serving you and treasuring you and honoring you and listening to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't just say, I love you. In God's word, you can't just say, I love God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's almost like Jesus is saying in John 14, 15, he's saying, I'm going to do my part, now you do yours. Jesus is saying, I'm about to sacrifice my life on the cross, now I want you to do the same. Daily denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Right? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to obey the Father's will, so you need to obey his will as well. If love really is feeling plus function, but you say, I love Jesus, and you don't obey him, do you know what that makes you? That makes you a hypocrite. If you say you love Christ and you're not willing to follow him, then that means you are fake. If you say you love Christ and you don't obey him, then you are a phony. Love is feeling plus function. Now, to better understand what's going on here in this verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me. just want to emphasize, he says, love me. So let's just talk for a moment about who is Jesus. Because Jesus says, you got to love me. You have to love me. And I think the problem is that too many people don't really know who Jesus is. Just like people don't really know what love is, many people don't really know who Jesus is. They think of Jesus as the way they want him to be, which is Jesus is more of this nice guy who ate with sinners, who did all this nice stuff, but he didn't ever really do anything that would be judgmental or exclude anybody from anything. Right? We're talking about people who see Jesus as some universal prophet or well-known holy man, but they don't necessarily see the exclusivity 
of who it is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is. Can I show you from just the Gospel of John who Jesus is this morning, just to make sure you know who this Jesus is? Just in the Gospel of John, we understand that Jesus is God. John 1.1, Jesus made all things, John 1.3, Jesus is life, John 1.4, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, John 1.5, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us at the incarnation, John 1.14, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.18, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, John 1.33, Jesus is the Messiah, John 1.41, Jesus came Jesus is something good that came out of Nazareth, John 1, And the whole gospel just goes on and on and on, pointing to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that this morning? Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus turned the water into wine. Jesus healed the royal official's son. Jesus healed the paralytic. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed the man born blind. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Listen to me this morning. Jesus will not be defined by you. Jesus defines himself. He is the word become flesh. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. Can you hear me this morning? He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the true vine. Are you awake today? This is the Jesus we serve. Do you love him today? Does he grab all of your heart today? And so when Jesus says, if you love me, let's be clear about who Jesus is. Jesus is a loving God, but he also hates sin. Jesus is merciful, but he also confronts hypocrites. Jesus is kind, but he also made a whip to drive out the money changers from the temple. Jesus is sweet, but he's also sovereign over all. Jesus is meek, and yet he's also mighty. Jesus is a forgiving savior, and yet he's also a fierce warrior. Jesus is wonderful, but he also demands to be worshiped. Jesus is gentle, but he also will be, needs to be taken seriously, right? He will not be trifled or relegated to an inferior rank or position in your life. Jesus wants to be Lord over all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is who we serve. This is the Jesus who says, if you love me. And so what is love? Love is feeling plus function. And then we're asking, who is Jesus? We understand him to be fully God, fully man, deserving of our worship, and he demands our obedience. Now, the third little sub-point I want to say here about this first heading is simply this. Well, what are Jesus's commandments? You ever thought about that? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, what commandments did Jesus give? What is it that he commanded? Well, you are to keep his commandments because that's the proof of your love for him. And if you love Jesus, you will obey him. And obedience is a hallmark of genuine saving faith that should be second nature for all truly born again, transformed Christians. And yet we got to ask the question, well, what are his commandments? How do we keep them? Just a word on keep real quick. To keep means to be persistent in obedience. It means to observe, to fulfill, and to pay attention to. A part of the meaning of keep is that we're to watch over. We're to keep on guard. You know, what I'm afraid is happening in the church today is people are like, well, I can't keep all of the Bible. Well, everybody's a sinner. 
Well, we all struggle, and it's almost like sometimes when we talk like that, if we're not careful, we're just saying, oh, it's not important to keep his commandments, because who could keep them all anyway? So it must not be that big of a deal. We'll push some of these over to the side, because nobody can possibly keep all of his commandments. And so what commandments are we to keep? Well, my answer to that would be, we're to keep all of them. All of them given in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus gives imperatives. And the imperatives he gives are his commandments. So don't think so much Old Covenant, which included the civil law and the ceremonial ordinances and dietary restrictions and clothing specifications. Those have all been done away with. In fact, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is, enacted, it, it is enacted on better promises. You know what he's saying? We're not old covenant Christians. We're new covenant Christians. Our identity is no longer the external part of the covenant community of Israel. Our identity is a new covenant believer in Christ by faith. But as a New Testament believer, by faith, he commands us a lot of things. Like the one we've already read in John 13, 34. Remember, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Now, this is not the only commandment that Jesus gives and calls us to obey. In fact, as I've been studying a little bit about Jesus's commandments and the imperatives that Christ gives in the New Testament, I have come up with no less than 50 commands that Christ gives in the gospel accounts. I'm sure there are more, but let me just share with you as an overwhelming understanding of all it is that Christ is calling us to obey. Here's what he says, all in the imperative form in the New Testament. 50 commandments. You are to repent. Jesus said, you are to follow me. He says, you are to rejoice. He says, you are to let your light shine. He says, you are to honor God's law. He says, you are to avoid anger in your heart. He says, you're to be reconciled with your brother. He says, you are to not lust. He says, you are to keep your word. He says, you are to go the second mile. He says that you are to love your enemies. He says, you are to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He says, you are to practice certain disciplines in secret, like giving praying, and fasting. He says you are to lay up your treasures in heaven. He says you are to seek first the kingdom of God. He says you are to judge not. He says you are not to cast your pearl before the swine. He says you are to ask, seek, and knock. He says you are to do unto others. He says you are to choose the narrow way. He says you are to beware of false prophets. He says you are to pray for laborers to be sent in the vineyard. He says you are to be wise as serpents and harmless in doves. He says you are to fear not. He says you are to hear God's voice. He says you are to take up his yoke. He says you're to honor your parents. He says to beware of the leaven. He says you're to deny, to deny yourself. He says you are to not despise little children. He says you are to confront others in their sin. He says you are to beware of covetousness. He says you are to forgive others. He says you are to honor marriage. He says you're to be a servant of all. He says you're to honor the house of prayer. He says you're to ask in faith. He says you're to help the poor. He says you're to pay your taxes. He says you're to love the Lord with all that you are. He says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. 
He says that you're to eagerly wait for his return. He says you're to take the bread and the cup. He says you must be born again. He says you're to keep Christ's commandments. He says you're to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. He says you're to feed his sheep. He says you're to baptize Christ's disciples. He says you're to make disciples. And he says you are to receive God's power. Now there we have it. 50 commandments that Jesus gives, and there may be more. There may be even more. This is just all I could find in a little bit of a study. These 50 could certainly be summarized as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we're told in Galatians 6, 2, that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, do you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love Jesus with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and strength? Then that should translate into showing it by obeying Christ. Husbands, that means that you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, that means that you need to respect your husbands and seek to obey Christ in that. Children, that means you're to obey your mom and your dad. As Christians, we're to be humble, patient, and kind. We're to be pure, obedient, and holy. We're to be sacrificial, servant-oriented, and to live joyful lives. Now listen to me this morning. Obeying all of Christ's commands is not easy. Obeying is not easy. Obedience can be really hard. It can be very difficult. If all we heard this morning is what I've already said, you'd be like, oh my word, I have got a whole lot of things in my life I need to change. Oh my goodness, there is no way that I can possibly keep all of those commandments. It's too much. And it would drive you into legalism. And it would kill your joy if you try to obey all of those commands on your own. That's why I have good news for you today. And the good news for you is that God is here to help you. And that Christ is here to help you. That Christ gives us a helper in the Holy Spirit to enable you and to empower you to do what you cannot do on your own. You listening to me this morning? You have a great responsibility. But the second heading, the second point, two-part outline. You have a great responsibility. Number two, you ready? You have a great helper. You have a great helper. He's going to help you. We're talking about the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son. Here in verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Let me just say that the intercessory work of Christ doesn't start in John 17. It starts right here. Right here, he's praying for you, and he's praying to the Father, and he's asking the Father to send you and me another helper because he knows we can't do what he's called us to do. You understand that? You can't do it. You will die trying. And so he gives us another helper. He's petitioning the Father to give us Holy Spirit to the church. And in this passage, we're seeing the triune God, that Jesus is praying to the Father for him to send us another helper. And aren't you glad? Are you glad this morning? Aren't you glad that Jesus is praying for you? He knows that we need help. 
He knows. I mean, he lived here, fully God, fully man, on this earth, and he walked among us, and he knew we needed some help. Jesus had already seen the disciples at their worst. He had seen them argue about who was the greatest. He had seen them doubt whether or not he could feed the 5,000. He had heard about how the disciples tried to keep the little children away from Jesus. I mean, what kind of person does that? Keep the little children away from Jesus. The disciples, they needed some help. They needed some understanding. Jesus had been misunderstood a number of times, even questioned by one of the disciples. Why was this perfume sold? Why wasn't it sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Jesus was rebuked by Peter. Jesus knew that if the Father did not send the Holy Spirit, that we would never make it. That we would not be able to keep his commandments without Jesus' help. And the help that Jesus is requesting is the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. What Jesus is to our salvation, the Holy Spirit is to our sanctification. Jesus came to save us by his substitutionary atonement. The Holy Spirit came to help us walk in obedience to the word of God. Now, you got to understand that we serve a triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all involved in salvation, and they're all involved in sanctification. So we don't want to divide the Trinity to the point to say that that statement I just made, what Jesus is to our salvation, the Holy Spirit is our sanctification, could be too cut and dry, or we'll get into to trouble, all right? But you understand what I'm saying. Jesus came to save. The Holy Spirit came to sanctify. Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many that those who repent and believe would have new life. And then he gives us, in that new life, the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you and who gives you the power to do exactly what it is that God's called you to do. And so as we are looking at this upper room discourse in this point of John's gospel, he hasn't had a whole lot to say about the Holy Spirit. But now that Jesus is preparing to go, he's encouraging his disciples that the Holy Spirit will now come. Jesus is leaving. The Holy Spirit's coming, and he will be with them forever. The presence of Christ on earth is departing, but the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is coming. It must have been so comforting for Jesus to say that he would ask the Father. I mean, that's just really encouraging. Right? Jesus is going to pray to the Father to send us another helper. You know, sometimes my kids might come to Lisa or me, and they might want to ask for something. And we can tell sometimes they're a little bit sheepish about which kid is going to ask, but I can tell they're all up to something because they're all kind of looking at each other like, you ask them. No, you ask them. You know, you ask them. And then they strategize. Do we ask dad this kind of question because he might say yes? We ask mom this kind of question because she might say yes. And they're kind of working it out, you know. And then we're like, all right, come on. And then sometimes our kids will be like, well, I know you'll probably say no. You'll probably say no, you know. Like, like they're, they're already working us. Like, we don't want to be bad parents. Well, just try me. I might say yes, you know. And so they might ask whatever they're going to ask, you know, can we have popcorn with the movie? Can we go to Six Flags? Can we do this? Can we do whatever? And sometimes they're just not sure, a little bit pensive about how we might answer. Well, listen to me this morning. You can have great confidence when Jesus Christ approaches the Father on your behalf that his prayers will always be answered. You can be greatly encouraged today that Jesus is praying exactly for what the Father is giving, and they're always in sync. 
And Jesus is telling us in this passage, as well as in this high priestly prayer of John 17, that he's praying for us. And it must have encouraged the disciples greatly to be like, oh no, even though Jesus is about to leave, Judas just left. He's going to be betrayed. At least now we know that he's praying for us. I mean, the disciples probably didn't even know what, 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 what a beautiful request and how good of a request this actually was going to be. They don't even know yet that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, eternal, underived, and possessing all the attributes of personality, deity, and intellect. They probably didn't fully realize yet that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. In fact, in all the divine attributes, the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-substantial with the Father and the Son. It is also the work of the Holy Spirit to execute the divine will with relation to mankind. The Holy Spirit was involved in the sovereign activity of creation. He was involved at the incarnation. He was involved in written revelation, and he's involved in the work of salvation. Aren't you glad today that Jesus has the wisdom and the insight to pray for such an incredible person to come live inside of you? I mean, Jesus challenges his disciples to obey, and then he prays for them that God would send them another helper. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus demands perfection, and then Jesus provides per perfection. He demands perfection, he provides perfection in the Holy Spirit, who's now going to empower us to do exactly what it is that God's called us to do. I love this master. I love this God. I love this Christ who says, I want you to keep all of my commandments. You are to be perfect, just like your heavenly father is perfect, but I'm praying for you, and I'm sending you another helper, and you can do it with his help. What a beautiful truth this is. I'm overwhelmed with amazement at the holy calling that God places on our life, and then I'm flooded with relief at the help at which he provides. Are you encouraged this morning? that the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son, but we also see this, the Holy Spirit is given by the Father. The second part of verse 16 says that, that basically he's going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now, in this passage about another helper, verse 16, this is the, the biggest surprise to me when I was studying this passage, we're just to look at these two words, another helper. Let me tell you a little bit about these two words. I think you already know, in the original language, the word helper is the word parakletos, which you maybe heard before. The Holy Spirit is your paraclete. Please note, I didn't say parakeet. All right? He's your paraclete. You ever heard that? Oh, the Holy Spirit's my paraclete. Anybody heard that? What's Pastor Ken been teaching you guys? Come on. All right? I, I know you've heard it, but it's the idea of like, we have a helper, we have our paraclete in the Holy Spirit. The word parakletos comes from two Greek words called para, which means near or beside or by the side of, and the word kaleho, which means to call or to invite. So if you put those two words together, parakletos, it means this, to call beside me, to invite to be near. This is the one called alongside of us to help. The connotation is that of a helper, 
a comforter, a counselor, an exhorter, an intercessor, an encourager, and an advocate or a defense attorney. The Holy Spirit fulfills all of those roles in our lives. And one of the most important things to realize about this word, parakletos, it does not describe the Holy Spirit coming to only comfort you. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, I need my comforter. And I would say yes and amen to that. You're going through a trial. You're going through a hard time. Your life is a mess. You're anxious. You're like, Lord, I need your comfort. And I would say yes and amen. He sends the Holy Spirit to comfort us. But do you remember what the meaning of the word is? He's supposed to come alongside you to help you. That's the real meaning. He comes beside you to help you. To help you do what? To help you trust God, love God, and obey God. He comes alongside of you as your helper to help you out. You need a helper. You cannot do it on your own. When you are weak, he strengthens you. When you are lazy, he exhorts you. When you are in need of prayer, he intercedes for you. When you need direction, he counsels you. And I believe that the work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost when he came from the Father as promised by Christ. And Jesus says it this way in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus is promising that after his resurrection, he is sending a helper to come from the Father. He will be the Spirit of truth. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you about him now, and when he gets here, he'll tell you about me later. I'm telling you about him now, and when he comes, he's going to remind you of what I'm telling you. And he's going to bring it back to mind, and he's going to strengthen you, and he's going to encourage you. There is no division between the Spirit and Jesus. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit, according to verse 17, is the spirit of truth in the sense of the same essence of the truth of God. The Holy Spirit will come to initiate and complete the building of the body of Christ, which is his church. He does this by regenerating us and then empowering us with spiritual gifts to function and to edify the body of Christ. The broad scope of the Holy Spirit's divine activity includes convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and transforming believers into the image of Christ. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit also indwells, sanctifies, instructs, empowers believers for service, and he seals us into the day of redemption. Now, I told you, I love the helper. I love our parakletos. I love the fact that he comes alongside me to help me in my darkest hour in my most depressed day, in my most needy moment. We need to call upon the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus did. Help me. I am weak, Lord, but you are strong, and you've sent me a helper, and I'm calling this helper to come and help. Well-known theologian R.C. Sproul said that when he is teaching this passage about another helper, he likes to ask his students, who is the paraclete in the Scripture? To which his theological students would confidently answer why the paraclete is the Holy Spirit. To which R.C. Sproul would cleverly reply, then why does Jesus say in this passage he will give you 
another helper. If Jesus is praying that the Father give the disciples another helper, then who was the first helper? And the answer is Jesus. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. Real quick, I just want to show you this. 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 2. If Jesus is praying that the Father would send us another helper, it means there is a first helper. And I'm submitting to you today that that first helper is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John writes this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. In this passage, we are called as children of God to obey the Father, and we are challenged to live a life without sin. And yet, we know that no matter what, and no matter how hard we strive, it's literally impossible. And so what will become of us, I wonder? Well, in 1 John 2, 1, he says we have an advocate. Guess what word that is in the original language? Parakletos. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our first paraclete. He is your first helper. He helps you by dying in your place. He helps you by being a substitution for your sin. He helps you by being an atoning sacrifice. He helps you by being your divine, your, your divine defense attorney. He helps you so that when you're in the courtroom of God and God says guilty is charged, Jesus stands up and he says, I advocate for that man or that woman because they're in me. They've been born again. They've been saved by grace. We have a helper in Jesus. He's our first helper. And we have a second helper in the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful for our first helper, Jesus Christ, the righteous? I mean, he's the propitiation for our sins. He died in my place. He's my substitute. He carried my sin debt. He gave up his life. He came to my side in the courtroom of God. He did what no one else could do. He lifted me. Love lifted me. Praise Jesus forevermore. Nothing else could have lifted me. No other person could have lifted me. But I don't have just one helper. I have two. I have the Holy Spirit, and I have the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when he says another helper, the word another is the word alos. Sorry for giving you so much Greek this morning. I don't actually know Greek that well. But, uh, but this is actually just super encouraging, so I just wanted to share it with you. When he says another helper, he used the word alos, A-L-L-O-S, which is the meaning of another of the same kind. Now, Adam, why are you saying that? Because he could have used the word heteros, heteros, which means another of a different kind. But he didn't. He didn't use heteros. He used alos. And alos means another of the same kind, of the same essence, of the same divine attributes, of the same power, of the same purpose, of the same ability, because both are of the same Godhead. And so we have two helpers, or lo and behold, do we have three. Do we have three? Because we also see the word helper used in the Old Testament referring to God the Father. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. 
The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 50 verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and now I know I shall not be put to shame. What an amazing truth you're learning this morning, that we're learning together this morning, that God calls us to obey all of his commandments, but he gives us the help of the Holy Spirit. He gives us his son, Jesus Christ, and lo and behold, God the Father is also your helper. And by the way, Never think of the word helper as inferior. Never think of the word as helper as somehow a second fiddle. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, my wife's to be a good helpmate. So I'm the man, and I got this, you know, and she's supposed to help me out. Well, just start thinking a little bit about Scripture. God helps you. Jesus helps you. The Holy Spirit helps you. So next time your wife is helping you, you just tell your husband, I'm just trying to be like God. So you need to receive my help. You need me, baby, right? Because if the Father's helping you in this, I think there's four helpers and your wife. That's your fourth helper if you're married today, all right? So the, the idea is don't think of the word as helper as inferior. The Lord is a very present help in time of trouble. Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He is our encourager, and he is our counselor. So the Holy Spirit is requested by the Son, he's given by the Father. And then the last thing I want to show you is the Holy Spirit abides in you. He abides in you, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it neither, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, unbelievers cannot get this kind of help. Unbelievers are not following God. Unbelievers are not filled with the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither knows him nor follows him. Without a radio, radio waves go unnoticed. But once the radio is turned on, the music plays so beautifully. The Holy Spirit goes unnoticed by the unsaved who have no spiritual life. But of the Christian, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14, it says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, just a cross-reference saying the unbelievers, they don't get it. They don't have the discernment. They don't have salvation. They have not received Christ. By not repenting and receiving Christ means they get no Holy Spirit. But you and I, if you're in Christ today, you're no longer natural, you're supernatural. And when the Holy Spirit regenerated you, he enabled you to understand the things freely given to us by God. And you know the Spirit because you know God. And guess what? The Spirit dwells in you, meaning he abides in you. He remains in you. 
I mean, think about it. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was at work in people's lives. But there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as we've already described in short. And part of that difference is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You understand that? In the Old Testament, it was more like the Holy Spirit was with you. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you. That's a huge difference. That's a massive difference. That's part of what's new about the new covenant. I mean, just listen to the way Ezekiel describes it in his prophecy of the new covenant. In Ezekiel, thir- Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So he's saying in that verse 26, I'm going to give you a new heart. New heart because you have a new Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he says. I'm going to put my spirit, where? Within you. Verse 27, Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See what he's saying? I'm going to save you, new heart, and I'm going to empower you, new spirit, new body, new walk, new life, new ability, new power to do what he's called you to do because he wants you to be careful to obey. And so after the cross and after the resurrection, the new covenant was inaugurated, Pentecost came, and now we see the full effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Before, There was sort of a coming and going of the Holy Spirit, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament when Moses' face was glowing when he came down off the mountain, or when Saul was prophesying when the Spirit came upon him, or even when David prayed in Psalm 51, 11, cast not me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But now we're understanding in John 14 that didn't happen anymore. He comes to dwell in you. He abides in you. And he will be with you forever. Do you see the encouragement of Christ in the, new, in, the, in the upper room discourse? I'm going away. I want you to be servants. I want you to love one another. I want you to keep all of my commandments, every single one of them. And I'm sending a helper. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no help. And so I'm here to invite you today into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm here today to call you out of your sin and to say that no matter what you're involved in, you need new life. And only through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can you be born again. And if you've been churched your whole life, but you don't know Jesus, then no wonder you're stuck in legalism thinking somehow you have to obey all these commandments because you can't. Because you don't know him. But I'm here to tell you today that he loves sinners. And that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the life that he's called you to is a life of obedience. Christian, you have a great responsibility. Don't check out on God. Don't coast. Stop compromising. Stop playing with the world. He's called you to full obedience. But Christian, he sends you a new helper. He's given you another helper. You can't do it on your own. You will die trying. 
But he sends another helper this day that you and I could walk in faith and we could walk in obedience and we could walk in holiness. You remember, the Holy Spirit comes. He comes alongside of us, not only to comfort us, but, but to help us do what he's called us to do. I hope that you will walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ as you seek to be a witness for him, as you seek to be bold for him, as you seek to apply his most fundamental loving one another type commands in the New Testament at home, in your marriage, with your parents, that you would love him and that you would obey him. You have a great responsibility, but praise God this morning, you have a great helper. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word. Forgive us, God, for the times that sometimes we just kind of waltz through familiar text and just forget about the beauty and the depth and the meditation that we could have on your precious word, which is infallible and inerrant and, and God-breathed. I pray that today, God, that every one of us today would just be challenged. Lord, we fall short. And we can't keep your commandments perfectly. And sometimes we can be discouraged when we know we ought to be keeping your word and keeping Christ's commandments, and we just can't. And yet today, we confess that to you. We can't, but Christ in us can. The Holy Spirit in us can. Thank you that you give us another helper to help us do what you've called us to do. And so I pray that we would be quick as a church to cry out for help that we would be quick to, to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, that we could walk in obedience. I pray for Lakeside Bible Church, that you would raise up men and women out of this church to love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray out of this church, you would raise up missionaries to take the gospel around the world. I pray that from this church, you would raise up godly men to preach and proclaim the gospel. I pray that from this church, you would rise up all Christians to be growing in their love for you and in their obedience for you, that we would live and walk this life of faith together, praying for one another. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for this challenge. Thank you for the incredible encouragement that you give us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.